The Babylonian Empire um, succumbed to the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great in 539 BCE. We're about one year into this, somewhere around 538 BCE or so. And Daniel is really old by now. No offense to anybody who is in their 80s, but Daniel is in his 80s and he's really old for for that time period. And he remembers something the prophet Jeremiah said way back before the fall of Jerusalem. Back in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah had prophesied that the whole country of Judah and all the surrounding nations would be laid waste for 70 years under the rule of Babylon. But then at the end of 70 years, Babylon was to itself was to be made desolate forever as God's way of balancing justice for all the terrible suffering they meted out. And Daniel realizes that the 70 years is about up. Um, And just a note on that Babylon will be desolate forever. Um, Babylon like continued for a really long time, like a long, long time. Um, And so, you know, I, this may be, I don't know what this means for at the end of the 70 years, Babylon would be made desolate. I think it's just referring to Babylon being, being conquered. Um, But there's lots of ways to interpret that. And anyway, Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to fast. His prayer of confession is in Daniel chapter nine, and it is a beautiful one. In it, Daniel confesses how God has been faithful to keep his covenant of love, even though the people have been so wicked and rebellious. He confesses how the Lord sent prophet after prophet, but no one would listen to them. And he says, Lord, you are righteous, but all of Israel, wherever we are scattered, we are covered in shame. We know that all that has happened was foretold all the way back through your prophet Moses. But now, Lord, remember that we are your people, the ones you yourself brought out of Egypt with mighty miracles. Remember Jerusalem your beloved city. See its desolation. Hear our plea, not because we deserve it, but because of your great mercy. Forgive us, please, for your sake, Lord. Act and do not delay. So that's a great prayer. That's a beautiful confession. There's just one problem. Daniel is doing all the praying and confessing on behalf of the people rather than the people doing it themselves. I wonder if the people are making that same confession. Do they even know Daniel is praying this? Would they agree with his words? Have they learned from their 70 years of exile? Is the chaff burned away now? Have their hearts turned back to the Lord? And what will the Lord do? Will he honor Daniel's prayer on their behalf, even if the people know nothing about it? Yes, yes, he will. God hears Daniel's prayer and responds immediately. Even while Daniel is still praying, the angel Gabriel shows up. Some translations say he flew, but the word can also mean 
great weariness. And there's absolutely no other place in scripture that says anything about angels flying. Daniel describes the various angels he sees in great detail, and there is no mention of any wings. So I think I'd go with the translations that render the passage as saying the angel comes to Daniel in extreme weariness. We find out later that the angels coming to Daniel are facing adversity along the way. Um, So, or perhaps it is Daniel who is extremely weary. That would work as well. At any rate, Gabriel tells Daniel, as soon as you begin praying, I was commanded to come give you insight and understanding because you are greatly beloved. And what Gabriel tells Daniel is one of the most famous and enigmatic passages in all of scripture. It is the the major prophecy that gives us an actual bridge from the time of the exile to the end time and the second coming of Christ. This is a hugely important prophecy. um, He says that 77s are decreed for the people and Jerusalem. The words for 77s here are related to time periods, and we assume that they are years. This is just an an assumption for now, but I will explain it in in a little bit why I I tend to agree that it's years. But at the moment, we're going to, for the purposes of of this discussion, we're going to assume that Gabriel is saying there are 70 sets of seven years that have been decreed by God for Israel and for Jerusalem. And if you remember your number meanings, seven has always been the number for wholeness and completion and perfection, right? So the end result of all these layers and layers of sevens must be something spectacularly wonderful. Now, this whole thing could be entirely symbolic. Many people interpret it it that way. It could just mean a perfect and complete time has been ordained. But most Christian interpreters do see this as literal years. And if so, we're talking about a total of 490 years here. Now, this has to be alarming to Daniel. He was counting on the original 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah, not 70 times seven. He probably doesn't think this is good news at all. Nevertheless, Gabriel continues. He tells Daniel There are six purposes to be accomplished in this time period. The purposes are to finish the transgression, to put a seal on sin. Um, And the words here talking about seal are, have the sense of an authority sealing it. Like when the king sealed the stone over the lion's den, so no one could move it. Remember, it's that kind of seal. And to atone for iniquity. I want to, pause for at this one and point out the huge range of meanings this word atone has in Hebrew. It could definitely be interpreted as appeasing and pacifying an angry God. That is certainly how the ancients saw their gods. If bad things happened to you, then the gods were angry with you and you need to sacrifice something to appease them. And in those times, the sacrifice could be an animal or it could even be your own child. But Yahweh, 
has gone to great lengths for over a thousand years by this time to convince his people, at least to try to convince them that he's not that sort of God. For Yahweh, we should be choosing translations from the other end of the spectrum of choices here. Rather than choosing the the word appeasing, let's choose the equally valid meaning for this word, that it is a time for our loving God to forgive us and cover over all our iniquities. Isn't this choice much more consistent with the prophecies about God's intent while his people are in exile? Every single prophet has testified to the exile as a time of being purified and cleansed and healed by God. So that's the first three purposes. What are the rest? It is also a time to usher in perpetual justice. That word also means righteousness. I've shown you already all throughout this study how God's justice has always meant setting things right. But this may be the first time, I can't remember if I've pointed out the language itself. Justice and righteousness are the same word in Hebrew, tzaddik. The sense underlying the word is straight, as in Amos's plumb line. Justice and righteousness are that straight plumb line of truth that dwells within us and resonates with the movement of the Holy Spirit. Just, straight, and true. You get the idea. The next one is mystifying. It says to put a seal on vision and prophecy. Many translators will say make an end of vision and prophecy. But this is exactly the same word as is used in the second bullet point that says this is a time for putting a seal on sin. I think we should do our best to understand these within the context of a king affixing a seal. God is doing some amazing things here. In the first place, it seems to me that God is sealing the door to the sins that um, people of of Israel had um, done uh, in the past. So they could not and cannot enter that way again. And I think we have to look at the seal on vision and prophecy from that same perspective. God already sent all the prophets and all the visions to try to save his people from destruction. You remember all that. And remember what Ezekiel said back in Ezekiel 7, uh, 25 and 26, just before the fall of Jerusalem. Back then, God said, when my wrath falls upon them, They will seek in vain for a vision from a prophet. Priests will not instruct in the law, and the wise counsel of elders will cease. That happened. The people did not listen, and now Jerusalem has fallen. So there's no more point in dire prophecies or alarming visions, you know, about the fall of of Jerusalem. That time has passed. It's no longer in God's mind or in God's view. Jerusalem has fallen and the people are in exile. There is no other shoe to drop. The bad things have already happened. So there's no need for more dire prophecies. This 
interpretation that I'm presenting is one of many possible interpretations, but it would match up with that first bullet point, the idea that the people's transgression is finished, over, done with. God has moved on to healing. He's putting all the terrible things behind them. I don't think he's saying that sin stops here forever and ever. We know that Sin and transgression and injustice and iniquity, they all continue to happen. So does vision and prophecy. Um, But I think the only way to really make sense of this list of six is to link it back to the fall of Jerusalem and the dire prophecies preceding the fall and the sin and transgression that led up to it. Um, Many interpreters think that God is saying that God will at some point in the future stop vision and prophecy, and they see all of these bullet points as being in time. But I think that's because they tend to look at the passage in a vacuum. They tend to study the book of Daniel standalone without taking into account its context, nor all the body of prophecy that came to the people just before it. I used to look at it like that too. But I've moved from there. I think these prophecies are directly linked to Daniel's prayer about the exile being over. I mean, the angel that came said, this is the answer to your prayer. The bullet points are about the exile itself. I think God is sending a strong message to Daniel that the exile is indeed over and that God has sealed up and covered over all of Israel's sins and he has no more harsh words for them. God is ushering in a season of justice and righteousness that will never end. God is sealing the past dire prophecies and visions, but he's not sealing all vision and prophecy forever or even in the immediate future for the exiles. We know this because there's more prophets in the Hebrew Bible that we haven't got to yet. There's only about three, but still. And we know that prophecy is one of the spiritual gifts specifically listed in the New Testament. I think the best way to make sense out of this particular passage is to realize it has to do only with what came before the fall of Jerusalem. The very last purpose of the 77s is to anoint the most holy. In English, we try to fill in the blank there. The most holy what? In English translations, this phrase is often followed by the word place so that it reads the most holy place. But the Hebrew just says the most holy. And based on this um, uh, insertion of the word place, Interpreters believe this means a temple will be rebuilt and a holy of holies will be reestablished in it. And they may be right. A new temple does get rebuilt here pretty soon. But I'm thinking we should not hasten to add the word place to our translations. What if we simply read what it says, that this is the time to anoint the holiest of holies, the most holy. Instead of place, we could just as easily and correctly add the word ones or even things. It doesn't have to be plural. It could be the most holy one. And in the greater context, I think that it is no accident that this phrase is the last 
culminating purpose of this list of wonderful blessings to be accomplished during this special season of layers upon layers of sevens. This must be the climax. Many interpreters make this list a list of negative things, and we'll reflect on that in our breakout session. But I think they've gotten it completely backwards. Who is the actor in every single thing on this list? Who alone can finish and put a seal on transgression and sin? Who alone can forgive or cover over iniquity? Who alone can usher in perpetual justice and righteousness? Who alone can, can, put, can start or put a stop to the flow of visions and prophecies? Who alone controls the content of visions and prophecies? The answer to all of these is Yahweh. God alone can do these things, and it is God alone who can anoint the most holy. For a hint at who or what the most holy might be, perhaps we should look at the object of these six things. If God is the actor, who or what? is being acted upon. The stated object in the passage is God's people and Jerusalem. You could add the phrase for the people and Jerusalem to each one of these items. God is sealing their sins, forgiving them, giving them a new government of justice and righteousness, putting all that has been awful behind them. We therefore need to add that same phrase to the last line. It is time to anoint the most holy for the people and Jerusalem. Many people see Jesus as the holy one in view here. They believe this season ushers in the Messiah. And I would agree with them. We're going to talk about that some more in just a, a minute or two. I think the ushering in of perpetual justice and righteousness, that alone has to do with the ushering in of the Messiah. The earlier prophets we studied consistently link a leader of perpetual justice and righteousness with the Messiah, the root, the branch. Remember all that language. And I think all six of these purposes should be viewed as a whole cloth. These are not six random, unrelated statements. Jesus is part of this. Messiah is part of this. Israel and Jerusalem are part of this. The temple is part of this. I think the last line encompasses all of these things. I think it also encompasses the dwelling of God with his people, because that's the only way this kind of thing happens. But that word anoint points pretty strongly to the Messiah in particular. The word for anointed one in Hebrew is literally Messiah. That, that's the word. So even though I think this phrase encompasses all that God is doing with his people in this season, I do think it specifically points to the Messiah as the most holy. It makes sense to me that God's 77s, this enormous abundance of perfection, will, would culminate with the coming and anointing of the Messiah. And given this understanding, the very next part of what Gabriel says to Daniel makes perfect sense. 
Gabriel gives Daniel a timeline for the 77s. Um, I put a link in the study guide this morning. I'm putting it in the chat again right now um, for a chart that we're going to look at here in a second. You might find it handy to print that. Um, Gabriel uh, breaks down the 77s into three pieces. He says, from the time word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince or ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's a total of 69 sevens. If you can do math in your head, that totals up to 69. And that means there's one final set of sevens left over because we got to get to 70 sevens, right? We'll get to that last set in a minute. For the moment, let's focus on the 69 sevens. Sevens are usually translated as weeks because there have always been seven days in a week. But we also know that the number seven represents wholeness or completion. So a seven could mean a season of whatever length is necessary to bring something perfect to um, perfect completion and wholeness. Or does a seven in this context mean seven years? Well, let's examine what Gabriel says. First, he says, from the time word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the beginning of the 77s. He's, he's measuring from that time. Daniel doesn't know this, but we know from hindsight that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem will be issued around March of 444 BCE, about 100 years later from Daniel. So if we count forward from there, 69 weeks, that's about a year and four months. So that would put us sometime in 442 BCE if it's talking about weeks. And the Messiah definitely did not come then. They had barely gotten started with the rebuilding by then. So I think we can safely rule out literal weeks. If each seven is an indeterminate period of unknown length, then this prophecy is not particularly helpful. Um, and God's track record with prophecy is that it is intended to be extremely pointed and helpful. It is intended to affect our paths, to give us hope, to draw us to God, to alert us to something important. So I would tend to say that indeterminate periods don't make much sense either. So that leaves years as the most reasonable choice for understanding these sevens. So here's where we get to that chart. There are two things to remember. First, the Israelites used a lunar year, not a solar year. Their years are 360 days long, not 365 days. And even if they occasionally adjust their calendar to stay on track, prophetic years would certainly be lunar years. And so we need to count each year as 360 days. And secondly, there's no zero year at the turn of the millennium. It goes from, you know, like minus one to plus one. So if you use these conventions, start at 444 BCE, count up the number of days that are being talked about and convert it back into our 
365 day years so that we know how long this period of time is from our point of view, we end up at 32 common era. And that makes a ton of sense. As best we can tell, Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna somewhere between 27 and 33 common era. So 32 common era would totally work. Now, you know, I try not to get hung up on precise numbers in these ancient texts. And you'll find people counting this up all sorts of different ways, getting different answers, but counting in this simple way of multiplying, you know, 490 times 360 days per prophetic year or per per lunar year, taking that number of days, dividing it by 365 and figuring out how many years that is, you get like 483 years of our versions of years. So if you get, if you count it just simply like that and get to 32 common era, what this is saying is Gabriel tells Daniel the Messiah will come at exactly the time Jesus actually shows up, something like 500 years later. And this is especially striking since we know for sure that Daniel was written long before the time of Jesus, probably 200 years before this 32 common era. It was was written about 165 BCE. So this is like, this is, this particular prophecy cannot, we know for sure, was written down and available widely more than 100 years, roughly 200 years before Jesus. That's pretty remarkable that the, that the prophecy says the Messiah is going to come exactly about the, the time that Jesus comes. But why did Gabriel say there would be seven sevens and 62 sevens? There's no indication that there is any significance in phrasing it like this. Nothing in particular happens historically after that first 49 years. I personally do not think there is any significance to the phrasing at all. I I think it's like saying a time, times, and half a time, which we've run across in prophecy. It's just an archaic way of phrasing the time period. Instead, I think Gabriel is simply using this phrasing to group the first set of 69 sevens together. Gabriel goes on to say that during this time of 69 sevens, Jerusalem's plaza and a trench or moat of some sort will be rebuilt, but that it will be done during a time of distress. And then the Messiah will come. That's what he says. But Gabriel says, the Messiah will be cut down and, quote, have none. That phrasing is a little weird. It could mean he has nothing or that he has no one, or it could mean there's words missing here. Translators do all sorts of things to fill in the blank here. But I don't think the have none part should be our focus. I think the important part is that phrase cut down. The Messiah will be cut down. The Hebrew word for cut down is karat. It means cut off. 
It is the word used when the Bible talks about cutting off the foreskin in circumcision. It is the word used when the Bible talks about cutting a covenant. And if we see Jesus in this prophecy, we see all of these meanings at once. The Messiah is cut as in a covenant. I think circumcision was the foreshadowing of this. God's hand is certainly unmistakable in this particular choice of words. Then Gabriel says, the troops of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the holy. It doesn't say the most holy here, which we earlier decided was probably the Messiah himself. At this point in Gabriel's prophecy, the Messiah is already cut down. So perhaps the destruction of the holy is referring to the destruction of the temple shortly afterwards. And historically, we know Jesus is crucified around 32 common era or so. And we know for sure that the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 common era and destroyed the temple. All of that would absolutely fit here. Gabriel goes on to say, there will be desolations and ongoing wars and the end will come like a flood or possibly come with a flood. Um, You can translate it either way. You may notice that on my chart, I've got a time skip and then a final set of seven years that culminates in the second coming of Christ. Gabriel is about to tell us what happens in that last set of seven years, but he doesn't say anything about a time skip. So ignore the time skip for now. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. For the moment, let's focus on what Gabriel tells Daniel about the final set of seven years. He says, the ruler who will come will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. I don't know if you remember our breakout discussion from class 67, where we talked about Isaiah 53 and about the righteous servant. That was definitely a messianic prophecy. And as Christians, we see Jesus in it. It says, through knowledge of him, my righteous servant will make many righteous. Therefore, his portion will be among the many, for he carried the sin of the many and he interceded for them. At the time, we noticed that this sounds as if Jesus' inheritance, his portion, is among his people. And we determined that the phrase, the many, at least at this point in the Hebrew Bible, refers to Israel, to God's people. So when Gabriel says this future ruler will make a firm covenant with quote, the many, there would be good reason to assume that this weird little phrase, the many, means the same thing it did in Isaiah 53. So the ruler will make a covenant with Israel, with God's people, and that makes sense if this whole prophecy in Daniel is centered on what happens to Jerusalem and to God's people after the exile is ended. If we go with that, then this ruler will make a firm covenant with God's people for seven years. But in the middle of the seven, Gabriel says he will stop sacrifices and offerings. This ruler is going to stop them. It sounds like something serious happens halfway into the seven-year covenant that causes the ruler to break his word and to begin persecuting God's people. Then Gabriel says, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That 
is a bizarre phrase. And as you can imagine, interpreters are all over the place on this. Here are some choices. The NIV says, and that at the temple, he, the ruler, will set up an abomination that causes desolation. The NRSV says, and in their place, meaning the place of the, in, in place of the sacrifices and offerings, shall be an abomination that desolates. The NASB says, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The will come is italicized to show that they've inserted those words as their best guess to smooth over the meaning. So this is very confusing. Fortunately, we have one more source. Jesus actually refers to this passage in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. And he says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that makes desolation that Daniel spoke of, you should flee immediately. This is one of the reasons many interpreters place the final set of sevens after the time of Jesus, because Jesus himself sees it as an unfulfilled prophecy. Many interpreters think Jesus is referring to the temple destruction in 70 common era. But if you read the rest of Jesus' remarks in this passage, I think there's another interpretation. Jesus clearly understands this verse in Daniel to mean that some abomination that causes devastation is going to get set up in the temple and that God is going to react strongly. Jesus then launches into a long warning about what will happen at that time. And he actually quotes some of the other day of the Lord prophecies. I agree with interpreters who think he's talking about the end time day of the Lord, not the destruction of the temple in 70 common era. He talks about false prophets and false messiahs, about persecution and the preaching of the gospel to all nations, about a time of great distress, such as the world has never known nor will ever know again, and how immediately after that time of tribulation has ended, the sun and moon will go dark, the stars will fall from the sky, and the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus talking about this, about this phrase in Daniel. That does not sound like the destruction of the temple in 70 common era. I didn't see any stars and moon falling out of the sky or anything. So if Jesus is talking about the end time day of the Lord, and if this abomination is standing in the holy place or in the holy at this, at this end time, then apparently another temple will be built after 70 common era, after the, the one that Jesus knew is destroyed. And no such temple has been built yet. Jesus' own words are why many interpreters, including myself, place the last set of seven so that it concludes with the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. We're basing that on the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. That is why there has to be a time skip after the crucifixion and before the final set of seven starts. And a time skip makes sense. 
because Gabriel himself inserted all these events after the first 69 sevens and before the last seven. We'll talk more about this when we get to the New Testament, but for now, let's hear the end of what Gabriel has to say to Daniel. Gabriel ends by saying that all these things will continue until the end that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This chapter of Daniel is dense, and I'm sure you have a thousand questions. In your breakout groups, you'll have a chance to look back over this stuff, talk about it, come up with questions, and then we'll get back together and talk about it all together and try to answer any questions you come up with. What I'm really wanting you to do is um, to think back on what you already had been taught about this prophecy, how you had previously understood it, um, and compare it to what you've made, what you've heard in this lesson, and just think about it. all that's on that study guide is just intended as prompts to prompt you to think of questions. Don't feel like you have to answer the questions, just think of questions together. And I'll see you in about 15 minutes. <laughs> so talk to me about your questions, your observations, what what came up? <laughs> Well, Martha asked a really good question right at the beginning of our breakout session, which was, what exactly does the end times mean? What is it the end of? Yeah, what is ending in the end times? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, from all indications that we have so far, and I'm trying to, to stick with the prophecies we've read up to this point, um, rather than drawing heavily from from future prophecies, um, what the end time has that that phrase has been associated in in Hebrew prophecy with the day of the Lord, with cataclysmic. Mean, pardon, which means because I was trying to hear yeah. what the day yeah. of the Lord meant with yeah. with <laughs> cataclysmic events which involve the sun, moon, and stars um, being shaken from their tracks, melted, falling down, depends on, you know, what words they use. Um, we have not yet come to one. Um, it will be in just a couple of lessons, but there is one um, in, in which the Mount, Mount Zion will split in half, mountains so the big the big the big finale (laughs) and and isaiah talks a great deal about it uh mountains being leveled and rough places made plain and you know it's there's just this huge cataclysmic kind of end of the world event um and it's very much associated with messianic prophecy with the coming of messiah Go ahead. You don't have to raise your hand. You can interrupt. Wait, well, I just wanted to politely yeah. get, get your attention, which led me to the question, why would God destroy what God spent so much creative energy creating? Yes, that's a wonderful question. And the, as we go along, we will get more context. But one of the keys is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It talks about... It is an end time prophecy talking about Gog and Magog. If Ross is on the 
on, yeah, Ross is here on the call. He'll know the chapters, but um, it talks about the, the armies of the world amassing against Israel and that God actually is not stepping in here to destroy Israel. God is stepping in here to defend Israel mm. and that it, it ends up being a huge and, and you know, spoiler alert at the end, Jesus comes as a conqueror, as a defender of God's people to bring justice and righteousness. And so God does what um, God says no to what has been in order to say yes to what will be. And at that point, which we have not yet got to, God will create a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. So it's going to be another creative act. It's another creative act. It's a defense of Israel and a definitive final creative act. Not final. God is always creating, but you know what I mean. Forgive, forgive my ignorance, but what is meant by the day of the Lord? And the day of the Lord is a phrase that we find frequently throughout the Hebrew Bible in the prophets when they, uh, and we saw it a lot in what we call pretzel time where past, present, and future, they kind of, those prophets move fluidly between the three. So they, usually what happens is they start out describing the destruction of their enemies, which are their immediate enemies, like Assyria or Babylon or somebody like that, right? But then this, as the spirit moves, they move into these more cataclysmic events and they use phrases like in that time and at the end and in the end time, they actually use that phrase and they follow that with these prophecies that I've been describing just now about, you know, have the stars and the moon and the sun will be shaken and the mountains will melt and all that stuff. That, so the end time is synonymous with the day of the Lord. We are, there is also a bigger timeline, which we call the end times, plural. Okay, and which Jesus refers to in this passage that we studied today, and he talks about there's going to be wars and rumor of, rumors of wars and false prophets will arise and false messiahs will come and don't follow them. And so those are, as we'll read in the New Testament, the birth pangs of the end time. So the end times as a plural can be perceived as a woman in labor. All right. So I very rarely in class talk about the end times. I talk a lot about the end time, the day of the Lord, because that's what the phrase that the Hebrew prophets are using. Thank you. What else? This is fun stuff. This is a big deal. This is like I said in class, this is the first place we actually get a prophecy that bridges us from the exile to the end time with a lot of specificity in between. How were you all taught this before? What, you know, if, if you were taught it before. I was telling everybody that 
this is above my pay grade. <laughs> I just go, okay, let's skim this and move on. Yeah, uh, I was sharing with my group that my mom had the most apocalyptic worldview of anybody I have ever known, um, especially as she got older. Everything to her was a sign of the end times, plural. And um, she was constantly looking for evidence of the rebuilding of the temple. She was constantly looking at, you know, everyday events and saying, it's all in there. You just got to look. It's all in the Bible. We're in the end times. The Lord is coming. You know, keep looking up. She spent her entire life. She died at the age of 91. And she spent her entire life expecting the second coming um, every, every moment of her life. And I think in many ways that stole her ability to really live fully into the present. Yeah, and I I was kind of always taught that it was a it was it was a warning that if you weren't getting prepared for the end times, you were either one going to miss it. I don't know how that would ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, or or that you had to make sure that you were on top of friends to make sure that they were ready so they wouldn't miss it. And, and so it was like I spent most of my, you know, my young adult years being terrified of like revelations and the end times and all this stuff. And then finally it was like pretty soon it was like, OK, I have no energy for this. I'm raising children. <laughs> and then we get into this Bible study and it's like, oh, God, isn't this big meanie waiting to throw a hammer at somebody? Because I kind of I always saw him kind of like Thor. And this has really helped me understand that, you know, hey, I don't have to worry about God because God's in control, but God loves me and everybody else in the world. So he's not just going to just, you know, routinely say, okay, you guys get it and you guys don't get it. So I'm going to give it to you. And it's like, because that doesn't make any sense to me now. I, and I shared that I have the opposite problem that, I, I like to lay down in the in the deep end and ask a whole lot of questions of which I I struggle to find answers for. Um, but I was taught um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a movie line here. I was pretty much taught uh, the end times was like you have been weighed, you have been judged, you have been found wanting, and that that's what it was more about. Other than this entire global you know, geographical, physical, leveling, opening. Uh, it was, you're going to be judged, you're going to be weighed, are you going to be found wanting? And Marlene, I'm, I'm sad for you because I, I also know that had to be probably to grow up under. And the irony that you're saying all that while stroking a black cat, I just want to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I... I put that I think as far as positive or I said, as far as positive, and negative, that it, it's both that in, in, when we examine a connotation, we have to examine everything that's there. And what I struggle with is 
how does Daniel know what the heck this means when the message comes to him, when we are centuries later trying to examine the same thing, and then it's recorded after everything's happened? Um, yeah, and actually, Daniel didn't have a clue. Daniel, at one point in a couple of chapters later, apparently the angel hands him a scroll. <laughs> And 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 the angel tells Daniel, just seal all this stuff up. It has to do with the end times. Don't worry about it. You're gonna live. You've lived a full life. You're gonna die happy. You're blessed. God loves you. All is well. See you later. Daniel didn't have any idea what this stuff meant. I I said I grew up in youth group hearing you know with the Kirk Cameron. You've been left behind. You know I was telling my group that I've got like the haunting theme song like you've been left behind and you know so it's it's a challenge I'm grateful for what we're learning and kind of expanding our knowledge and one of the themes that kind of kept coming up in our group was your question number three of in light of all the semi-knowns but a lot of unknowns and kind of bigger picture than we've ever thought of it as before you know we we Erica said like we don't want to live in fear and I find myself feeling overwhelmed and just wanting to throw it all out kind of similar to I think Julia said like just gonna kind of skim over this part check my box that I read it but I don't really know how or what it's supposed to you know how it's supposed to impact me today and I think part of that is just my control I, I want to have a plus b equals c so that you know back to kind of what Renee said so that I can make sure everybody knows is how I was taught right? You don't want to be left behind and you want to make sure none of your loved ones are left behind. So it was this odd, not the Lord, but really kind of taking control back, you know, for myself and, and making sure I do it. Well, and you know what being what we know now is that it is important that nobody be left behind, but that that doesn't have anything to do with holding some scary prophecy over their head and that they're going to get judged and beat to smithereens and blown up and, and, but that it has to do with not being left behind now in our relationships, in our love, in who God is right now in our lives, in our hearts and in our communities. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I guess I take more of a positive outlook on it. And, um, you know, my husband always says that I'm Pollyanna. And, um, you know, I prefer to think uh, well of, of someone rather than negative. And um, I look at it as, I mean, I, I see this and it's not that I don't believe it or I want to throw it away. I don't know that it necessarily is for me to understand. It's good to read it, but... What I need to focus on in my life is, as you said, Gail, my relationship with God now. And because that's that's what Jesus was all about. And, you know, Gail, you made that little note about not bringing revelation into what we were talking about. You can't hardly help it. It's hard. (laughs) Right. It's hard for me not to bring. I mean, Jesus into it, not to bring the New Testament into it, where all throughout the New Testament, we are told that God loves us and he wants what's best for us. And so, um, I, you know, I mean, he doesn't want us to go running off and doing whatever we want and being the desolation that, you know, the, and, and all that sort of thing. But I, that's the way I try to, to look at it, that he says, that, you know, this comes from God. I mean, you know, if this is the way it's been recorded, okay, that doesn't mean it won't happen. But 
you know, right now I prefer to, that's just what it's best for me. And I had a father who often interpret like Marlene's mom often interpreted things, especially things that were kind of unusual happening, which it seems nowadays, those things aren't unusual anymore. I mean, especially, uh, nature events there just seem to be happening more and more. And I mean, that, let's not get into global change or any of those kinds of things. That's, that's a whole nother sticky wicket. But, but, it is, you know, but it is part of the New Testament of, yes. of what was said. This, you're going to see more and more and more earthquakes yes. and tornadoes and all that yes. stuff. You know? But one thing I brought up in our group, which I don't know how, how anybody else feels about it, is how do we know that the end time hasn't already started? I mean, it, you know, there's these things going on. But we just like we don't know exactly how long creation took, we don't know how long end time is taking. That's right. So, and that's I why mean, I find it e- helpful to view the end times as a gestational period. Okay. And that um, okay. as yes. labor pain, and it's just, it, as and we get we, closer to we birth, do our best. as we get closer to birth, the pangs become closer and closer together and more severe. Um, it is, I think it's very helpful <laughs> to look at it like that. And, and two, I take two things away from this, all of this. One is all of these day of the Lord cataclysmic sun falling out of the sky. That scares the crap out of me. Right. But death scares the crap out of me too. Right. You know, it's the pain yeah. of it's, and I trust God with my own death. I trust God with all of us. I, I hear these prophecies. I know there's pain and suffering involved. I still trust God. And so therefore, I don't need to listen to a voice of fear. In God, there is no fear. What I can do, though, is read these and know to recognize events or patterns of events or collections of events, you know, as they happen. And I trust the Holy Spirit to let me know in that time, if I lived in, if I am living in that time, or if I do live in that time, I trust the Holy Spirit to let me know to bring these back to mind if I need them in order to interact with real people, real time in real relationships. If I don't need it for that, I don't need to be spending emotional energy on it. All right. It is, it is as if these are training me as a labor and delivery nurse to recognize the signs when I see them and know how to respond. But the labor and delivery itself is not in my hands. It is in God's hands. Right. Can I ask you though, in what way do you expect your response to be different when you recognize that it's the end times that it is today? You know what? Go ahead. Bye-bye. I believe that all of this study trains me and grows me in wisdom and strength so that 
when faced with anything that is evil or when faced with something like, you know, hordes like what Ukraine is facing right now, you know, Mm -hmm. armies coming against that I will be the person in the bomb shelter who is firmly rooted. But are you not that now also? I am that now also. Yes. It is these, these things, what I, the truths that we are learning, their impact on us should not be, should not change because of external circumstances. Agreed. Okay. So these we're studying (laughs) external circumstances. So we know when they happen, we know we, we are practicing in our daily lives, how to be. How Agreed. to dwell with God, how to let God have the power, how to not let this fall on our shoulders, how to not feel like we have to fix this. Yep. That is where I'm at now. And some of that is thanks to you in this Bible study, um, because carrying the weight of everything has just been make, physically destroying me. I mean, um, and, you know, health wise, but through listening and talking with all of you and all of our shared experiences and new ideas. I agree. That's, that's where I'm at that all of this is not foretold to make us worry. It is as we're soldiers learning how to handle this so that when the time comes, we know where we stand and we're firmly rooted. I agree. I think it also helps. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Renee. It also helps that when you look even in the Bible, you know, in the like ancient times that people were getting, you know, cities destroyed and stuff like that. But God was there and he took care of the people. Yep. And I think that helps us look at what's going on today, knowing that God's going to take care of everyone. You don't have to. Yeah. I think what you said, Pastor Gail, about not listening to the voice of fear and trusting the Holy Spirit in us. I think that for many years, I lived in trusting what others told me about God and what was going to happen. And which was part of the reason the fear was there is because they might, they must know more about the end times than I do. So therefore I have to trust that. And I think this journey that we're all in is And part of this Bible study is learning to trust the Holy Spirit that lives in us, which I think whether it's because culturally, whether it's religion, whether it's gender, uh, we have been taught to question ourselves or not to trust ourselves, especially with if there are some of the our faith that teaches us that we're all um, that our heart is wicked and deceitful and we can't trust it. So there's been a shift of recognizing The God who created this world has also allowed the Holy Spirit to live in me. And how can I begin to trust that? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's difficult for all of us when we've been taught not to trust ourselves because Mm -hmm. we are all sinful and need Jesus. So as we're learning all this, what brings me more peace is when you when we've learned about the pretzel time and then we when we learn about the refining of the fire, is it the refining fire, because then that 
begins to shed another layer of fear in particular that has been taught of the end times and of eternity in hell. So then I'm like, okay, I can breathe. God lives in me and I can learn to trust that. Although I have lived many years now, not trusting and questioning and looking to others. So thank you because this is another piece of helping Helping. me begin to trust the Holy Spirit. That I think you're right. At the end of the day, if we're all caught in the end times, I want to have a peace because God lives in me and he will show me what's true. He will tell me what to do next without looking to others. So thank you. You always express these things so well. That's beautiful, huh? Any other comments before we um, go for today, Martha? I have a question about uh, that relates to Daniel's um, confession. He was making a corporate confession in that he was using we language and our language. In the churches that I have attended, uh, I believe even, I'm trying to remember what what the Catholic liturgy was like, but in the Methodist churches that that I have attended, the confession of, uh, the confession is corporate. We have sinned. We have not heard the cry of the needy. We have not. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and wondering. Um, so that kind of goes to the, I'll call it the national level, uh, like we have talked about Israel. This is about Israel as, as a country or as a, as a corporate being. As a corporate being. But I also wonder if we're not missing something by not hearing ourselves say, by me not hearing, by the person next to me not hearing, I have sinned. I have not heard the cry of the needy. I have not. And I've just been um, wondering if it gives us an out. Hmm. Yes, by, by making our church tradition corporate only, yes. And I absolutely agree. Um, the, the fact that Daniel was using we language is part of him being a prophet. Prophets do part of their function is corporate confession. That is what mm-hmm. part of what they do is stand and talk to God. Um, and just like Moses did. We've seen it several times. Jeremiah, all of them. Um, but there is so much power in confessing. And we have, we have shifted that out of the um, church and into the therapist's office. Um, And that doesn't mean it's not powerful still. It means that there is another dimension to it that is worth considering. And Uh, It's a big part of the 12 step programs, you know, is that I confession and moving through that. So I think it's still out there in our culture and it is still very much a part of the Catholic church and the Catholic faith. But um, I think as Protestants, we have lost a powerful um, ritual, a powerful space making. It's a, it's a making of space. 
for us to say I. We're talking about the modern definition of confession. And that's not even necessarily what um, the prophet was doing. He confessed God has done great things for us. God has taken care of us. Confession <laughs> traditionally is not necessarily um, saying I've sinned. I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Confession. It can be both. It can be both. Right. Confession. It can be a Thanksgiving. Confession is agreeing with God. That's what confession really is. Confession isn't hmm. an act of contrition. It's not. I think, it's an, I think that's a good point that it's an act of seeing with God's eyes. Yeah. And confessing that I now see this situation with God's eyes. Yes, exactly. And, and that takes the guilt part of it away. I think that's a beautiful, you know, way to, to put it because I don't think God is like, trying to pound us with guilt. I think God Seriously, is trying to get us where, to see with God's exactly eyes. where my brain is because I was brought up like Erica was talking about. I was brought up, um, I was a teenager in the 70s, okay? Teenagers in the 70s in Baptist churches were growing up on um, hearing about Jonathan Edwards' sinners in the hands of an angry God. We were taught... Um, you know, we, we were taught a thief in the night. We were taught a burning hell. We were taught all this negative, negative, negative. And one of the things that is so sorry, I've been very emotional this week. One of the things that I love about this Bible study is the focus is taking off of the negative, even in all the negative situations, the focus is God is good and God loves us and God is providing and God is taking care of us. And so often we lose track of that. Yeah. But I like, and I do think that's the main thing. If you get nothing else out of this whole ramble, that's the main thing. Um, I do um, appreciate though, Martha's thoughtfulness around what our response is, you know, because I don't think the message that I want you to walk away with is one of complacency or one that you don't need to change. You know, I, I have said many times, if, if five years from now, I'm in the same place, I've done something wrong. We need to be growing, challenging, digging. You saw in this lesson, my view of, of, of the six things, you know, they, that, that, that angel talked about has changed um, over these, the years. I think the copyright on the, on the, that chart I handed out was 2006, you know, I've changed. So anything else before we close? That was a, That was a big lesson. Y'all did good. Love you. And we'll see you next week. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Gail.